Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is our text for today. This is the 12th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Um, I am not going to have an outline for you today, but I will at the conclusion of the sermon have four observations and I just want to tell you up front that observation number four is that Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner. Sermon today is 30 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is Privileged Character. So I would ask, please, that you would turn to Romans chapter 2. As you do, I want you to remember that God loves you. As I am preaching the entire sermon today, I want you to keep in mind that God loves you. Uh, Throughout the remainder of your life, I want you to remember that God loves you. Listen, please, as I read the first five verses of Romans 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath For yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Our Father in heaven, I would ask please that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit to preach a sermon which is accurate, one which truthfully reflects what you have said in your word through the pen of the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. But Lord, this morning I I would... I would ask for more than accuracy. Lord, I would ask, please, for conviction. Uh, I would ask, Lord, please, that we would not be content, uh, Lord, with where we are right now. I pray, God, that we would have a desire to strive for holiness, Lord, that that would come through seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, yes, we want to understand the text, but, oh, God, we want to be different, and I pray that you would change us through the preaching of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For some reason, and I'm pretty sure that that reason is pride, we effortlessly observe the shortcomings and the failures and even the sins of other people, and then we use those observations in order to feel better about ourselves. Even as the Pharisee prayed to God in the temple in Luke 18.11, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, uh, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, we have 20-20 vision when it comes to seeing exactly where others are deficient. And I'm, I'm not even going to make the argument today that we are always wrong in our assessments. Sometimes we are right. We look at others and they have problems and they're doing things that are wrong and we see it accurately and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Being observant and being perceptive and being discerning is not a sin. What I'm simply saying here is that most people are very well skilled at detecting the shortcomings and the sins in other people, and often their assessments give them fodder in order to feel better about themselves. Uh, 
I'm pretty sure that most of you can relate to that. And if you can't relate to that and see the flaw in yourself, well, just know that I can see the flaw in you, and the flaw that I see in you makes me feel better about myself. So uh, imagine that you are a Jew and that you are living in Rome about the year A.D. 57. You have been raised knowing that Israel is God's chosen people, and you treasure the heritage that you come from. You treasure knowing that you come from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if you were a male, you were circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, you were schooled in the law of Moses and, and with an upbringing and a mindset that said the Jews are God's special people. And maybe you're even familiar with the apocryphal book, Wisdom or the Wisdom of Solomon. Now, the Wisdom of Solomon uh, was not written by Solomon. It was written probably about the year 100 BC. It is not scripture. It does not have the authority of God's word. But it was literature which was widely read and highly regarded among the Jews. And in the book, the Wisdom of Solomon, if you were familiar with that literature and you were a Jew, you would have read these words in chapter 15, verse 2. For even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power. Translation, it's okay if we sin because we belong to you. And your power sort of gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card. In other words, we the Jews have a special status because we belong to you. You, you, you. Your power gives us exemptions. Well, that's your religious upbringing. Now contrast that with your culture. Every day... Every place you look, and I mean everywhere, there are evidences of a debaucherous lifestyle. There are expressions of pagan Gentile sin in Rome. It is the capital of the world, and sin and all kinds of ridiculous Gentile sin is abounding. And so you, you would not have to struggle to view yourself as morally superior, and let's just say you as a Jew living in Rome in about A.D. 57 were to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you were to become convinced that he is the Messiah, that he is Lord. And let's just say that you joined a church in Rome, and that church was made up mostly of Gentiles. There's a few Jews, but the majority are Gentiles. And let's suppose that one day you go to church, and as you're gathering for church, one of the elders stands up and says, ladies and gentlemen, I have some good news for you. We have just received a letter in the form of an enormous scroll from the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to read that letter in its entirety for you right now. Now, as you are listening, you're a Jew, you're, you're listening, you have heard of the Apostle Paul, but you have never met him. Uh, you are just listening closely to see uh, what your take on this Apostle Paul guy is going to be. And all of a sudden, you start to hear about how wretched the Gentiles are. Now, what I'm describing to you now is what we call Romans chapter 1. They didn't call it Romans chapter 1 back then because there were no chapter numbers or verse numbers, but you're just hearing the letter as it's being read. You're hearing the beginning of the letter, and what you're hearing is how nasty these Gentiles are. 
and, and how they do not glorify God and how they are not thankful to God and, and how they practice idolatry and how they are given up to perversion and how their foolish hearts are darkened and how they do not like to retain God in their knowledge. And then you hear this crescendo at the end of Romans chapter 1 which says that, that there are 21 items on a vice list which characterize the way that Gentiles live. And to top it off, not only do they do these things, but they give hearty approval. They give the okay, the thumbs up, the green light for others to do the same things. And as you, as a good Jew, are listening, you are saying, I like this guy, the Apostle Paul. Amen. I could not have said it better myself. Paul, you know exactly what you're talking about. Amen. Preach on Give it to the Gentiles because they deserve it. What you don't know is that Paul is setting a trap for you by allowing you to congratulate yourself in your heart and your mind of your moral superiority. And the trap is sprung when you congratulate yourself and you judge them. Remember Romans chapter 1. Paul makes a case that Gentiles are guilty sinners before God. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following start to talk about the wrath of God that is poured out because of these sins. And all the way through verse 32, Paul refers to the Gentiles as they or them or their. In fact, in those verses 18 through 32, we have we have 20 times that they are referred to as they or them or their. When we get to chapter 2 and it starts to address the Jews, he, he changes to the word you. You or your or yourself. Uh, they appear uh, 30 times in chapter 2. When we get to chapter 2 and he starts to address the Jews, he's going to use the words you, your or yourself. And those words appear over 30 times in chapter 2, even 13 times in the five verses that we have in front of us today. And so Paul himself is a Jew, and he's going to use the word we in verse 2. He's a Jew, and they are Jews. Now, now here's the key. Even though the group in chapter 1 is the Gentiles, and the grammar for that is the they, them, there, those are the pronouns there, and we shift into chapter 2 and the, the pronouns change to you, your, or yourself, even though the, 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 the audience changes somewhat, the message stays exactly the same. And what is the message? It's the same in both chapters. In chapter 1, it's that sinners are guilty before God. And in chapter 2, the message is that sinners are guilty before God. The sinners in chapter 1 happen to be the Gentiles, and the sinners in chapter 2 happen to be the Jews. Which begs the question, why even go to the trouble of having two separate chapters? Why doesn't he just explain to everybody all at once that they are all guilty and have it done with? And the answer that Paul separates the Gentiles from the Jews, from chapter 1 to chapter 2, is that we do not struggle to see and to condemn sins in other people. You can see it, you can condemn sins in other people. But when it comes to our own failings, there are blind spots which are enhanced by pride. And Paul knew about the spiritual pride of the Jews. 
Now, why could Paul speak in such a, a, a deep way? And how could he have such um, uh, discernment to get in touch with how these Jews in Romans chapter 2 were, were, um, uh, were self-righteous? I think the answer to that question is because he himself used to be a self-righteous Jew, and he used to have a lot of spiritual pride, and he used to think that he himself was morally superior. Look over, please, in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 2 through verse 8. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That is, those that require you to be circumcised. That's talking about the Jews. For we, he's including himself, we are the circumcision, that is, we are Jewish, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, you need to consider me because I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, we cannot boast about anything that we do in the flesh. But if there was ever anybody who could boast about what they accomplished in the flesh, it would be me. I am as Jewish as they get. I am as religious as they get. But yet Paul says, I take all of that and I throw it away. It is rubbish. I think that's part of the reason why Paul is able to understand the self-righteousness of the Jews to whom he is speaking in Romans chapter 2. He knew that there were Jews in that congregation at Rome who struggled with the same kind of arrogance. And so here's what he does. He very skillfully moves from a detailed explanation of Gentile sin in Romans chapter 1 into an argument in chapter 2, which will persuade the Jews that they too are guilty sinners. Now, what I will need you to do now is just to put on your thinking cap for a moment and look at your Bibles, and I want you to notice how, H-O-W, how Paul repeats himself in chapter 2 from chapter 1 using phrases and words and concepts in 1 and in 2, which summarize that both Jews and Gentiles are sinners. Chapter 1 is the Gentiles. Chapter 2 is the Jews. Uh, let's just go through this very quickly. Uh, chapter 2, he says to the Jews, you have no excuse. Well, where have we seen that before? We saw that of the Gentiles back in chapter 1, verse 20, when he said they are without excuse. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, three times Paul is going to use the phrase, practice the same things. Well, where have we seen that before? Well, we saw that being described of the Gentiles back in chapter 1, verse 32. Those who practice such things deserve to die. 
In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, we know that there is a just judgment and a just judge. Well, where have we seen that previously? In chapter 1, verse 32, speaking of the Gentiles, that they know who those who practice such things deserve to die. In chapter 2, verse 5, he talks to the Jews about their hard and impenitent hearts. Well, where have we seen discussion about the hearts of men? Well, we saw it concerning the Gentiles back in chapter 1, verse 22, that their foolish hearts were darkened. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says of the Jews, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Where have we seen the revelation or God's wrath being revealed previously? Well, we saw it concerning the Gentiles in chapter 1, verse 18, where it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And then finally, finally, we're not going to look at it in this sermon, we'll look at it in the next sermon, and that is the phraseology to the Jew first and also to the Greek appears in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. That appeared previously in chapter 1, verse 16, where salvation is for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, so what is the purpose then of me pointing out that there are so many similarities and phrases which are repeated and concepts which are repeated from chapter 1 into chapter 2? It, it's not to accentuate the fact that there might be something coincidental going on or to accentuate that maybe Paul has a limited vocabulary. Uh, no, the reason why there are so many conceptual repeats between chapters 1 and chapter 2, Paul is doing it on purpose, and he is doing it in order to demonstrate chapter 1, Gentiles are guilty before God. Chapter 2, Jews are guilty before God, and there really is no difference. And when he comes to the culmination of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in 3.23, he will preface that in 3.22 by saying there is no distinction, there is no difference. And so with that set up in place, let's get now into chapter 2 and begin with verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What Paul is doing here uh, in this, uh, in terms of his style or his rhetoric here, he's using a rhetorical device known as a diatribe. What is a diatribe? Well, a diatribe is when you create a, an imaginary conversation with an invented person. And what Paul is doing here is he is pretending as if he is talking with someone who is a self-righteous Jew. And for our purposes today, we will call this self-righteous Jew Mr. Privileged Character. And Paul, as I said, knows this guy's mindset because he himself used to be a self-righteous Jew. He anticipates what the objections of Mr privileged character will be, and he makes a case against Mr. Privileged Character by correcting his thinking, and he proves to him that he himself, Mr. Privileged Character, is actually bringing guilt upon himself for the day of judgment by being judgmental of others. And so what you have is an imaginary conversation with an imaginary friend, it's called the diatribe, but he, this Mr. Privileged Character, represents the mindset of the average Jew 
in the ancient Near East. So again, with that in mind, take a look again at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, O Mr. Privileged Character, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What is Paul doing here? He's saying to them, you are just getting yourself in trouble. He starts off with the word therefore. Uh, That word therefore would be a shock to the Jews. Remember I said several minutes ago, if I'm a Jew and I'm listening to chapter 1, I am applauding. I'm saying, right on. That's, That's right. Amen. But now when he says therefore, that would throw me off. Because how can you possibly make any connection between us, righteous Jews, the people of God, and Gentile dogs? Uh, The Jews would have expected an amen, end of story, at the end of chapter 1. But Paul says, no, there's a therefore. There's a connection between them and you. And Paul, in doing this, is saying, you are more similar to those Gentiles than you are different, and therefore you have no excuse. You see, Gentiles have no excuse to offer in the final judgment because they have nature which has been preaching to them the glory of God. Jews have no excuse for a different reason, and their lack of an excuse is because of their prideful hypocrisy. Now please notice that the primary sin of the Jew here is not that they are judgmental, although that's part of it, but that is not the primary sin. It's that they are simultaneously committing these sins while at the same time judging the Gentiles. And so he says in verse 1, you, the judge, practice the very same things. Hang on to that thought as we move into verse 2. What he's going to do when he gets to verse 2 is is he's going to to make a statement where which establishes something which they both agree on, that there's no debate, there's no argument here whatsoever. He says, we know, there's no debate about this, we know, we Jews know, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You're not going to get any argument from anybody on that. I know that you will agree with me on that, is what Paul is saying here. I know I don't even need to take time to convince you of that. We know this for certain. But Paul is not using this given, this given about the justice of God and the final judgment of God in order to reassure Jews that that Gentiles will be punished. No, he's actually saying we know this because it applies to everyone. He is saying it applies to the Jews and to the Gentiles, that everybody is in the same boat, that God is a righteous judge and his justice rightly falls on all Gentiles and Jews who practice these sins, there's going to be a fair verdict in the end. And so Paul is saying, Mr. Privileged Character, I know that you believe that and you're not even going to argue with me on that. And then he takes it into verse 3 and he throws the knockout punch when he says, do you suppose, O man, and this is the second time he has used that, that title, O man, which is, which is to the best of our understanding in, 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 in an emotional appeal here. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you really think 
that you, on the one hand, can look at the deficiencies of others, point them out, judge them, when you yourself are doing the same thing and that in the final analysis that you are going to be acquitted? And the obvious answer is no, you won't do it. Now, let me make a side note here concerning judging. I think judging gets a, gets a bad rap, uh, an undeserved bad rap. Uh, I, th- I think we misunderstand the whole idea of, of judging one another. It's actually not a bad thing. Some people think that it's a bad thing because they take Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 out of context and they just use it as a get out of free, get out of jail free card all the time. And Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. How does that work? Well, um, someone uh, falls into a sin, they commit a sin, someone uh, observes that sin, they go to that person and they start to say something about it, but immediately they are silenced by the person saying, you really can't point out the sin in my life because the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. Judge not lest you be judged. That is not what the verse means at all. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, if you read it in its context, is saying that that if you are judgmental of other people, you first better get the log out of your own eye. Uh, Judging, if done properly, is a very valuable tool in our quest for personal holiness. Matthew 7.1 is not a prohibition against making an observation and following it up with a loving rebuke. You see, as Christians, we have been called to have discernment and to make evaluations and to speak the truth in love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, test the spirits to see if they are from God. Even back in Matthew chapter 7, right after Jesus says, do not judge, he says, do not cast your pearls before swine. Well, in order to determine who the swine are, you have to make a judgment. So there's nothing wrong with being discerning and making a judgment. Judging is not only acceptable, but I believe that it's necessary, and in Scripture it is commanded. Jesus said in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge, that's, a, that's an imperative, judge with righteous judgment. And Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians 5, 11, is it not those inside, that is the members of the church, inside the church, whom you are to judge? And the implied answer is yes, we are to judge one another inside the church. So judging in and of itself is not bad. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is not condemning the judgment of the Gentiles, seeing as how he in the previous chapter made a pretty clear judgment against them by pointing out what they were doing wrong. But what he is, what he is upset about is their pride and their hypocrisy. Because not only are they judging the Gentiles, but they are then doing the same things themselves. I remember when I was a child, I was always told when we pray, you should close your eyes. You know that nowhere in the Bible does it say you're supposed to close your eyes when you pray? I think it is a good idea because it, 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 
it, it demonstrates reverence and it, it, it removes distractions. But, but, but you will not find a verse in the Bible that says that you have to, it kind of freaks me out when I see people praying and their eyes are open, but that's okay. They're, they're, I mean, I, I, I do it when I'm driving all the time. That's not, that's not a problem. But when you're a child, you don't know the difference between what's in the Bible and what's not. If you're told you're supposed to close your eyes, you just, you close your eyes. And I remember all the time that my, my Sunday school teacher used to say, Eddie, I, I observed that, you know, while we were praying, you, you had your eyes open. I wasn't smart enough to know, well, how would she know that unless her eyes were open? <laughs> but, but that's what's happening here. You're judging someone else while you're doing the same thing. And I think that that is illustrated the best in the story of King David, who was the most powerful man in the world. In the spring of the year, when kings go off to war, David didn't go off. But instead, he went up onto the roof of his house, and he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. And he said, get that woman for me. Her name was Bathsheba. And he slept with her, and she became pregnant. And so he panicked, and, 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 and in, in a, 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 a hideous act, he had her husband murdered. And then he tried to obstruct justice and tried to cover it up. Lo and behold, one day the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, David, I want to tell you a story. There was a guy. He was rich and he had more sheep than you could count. But there was this other guy and he was poor and he only had one sheep. It was a, a little ewe lamb and he loved this little sheep, treated that sheep like a, like a daughter. Lo and behold, the rich man had a visitor one day and he didn't want to go into his own field and, and, and kill his own sheep. And so what he did is he stole the sheep from the poor man and he used that to feed his friend. As David listened to this story, he became infuriated. And he said, that man deserves to die. He's going to have to pay back four times what he stole. Now, at this point, if it was a real story, David would have every right in the world to be angry because that indeed was cruel and, and it was unjust. But what David could not see and what we have trouble seeing is that he was the rich man. And Nathan looks at him and he says, you are the man. He had many wives, but he stole Uriah's wife murdered Uriah, covered his sin. Well, that's what the Jew is doing in Romans chapter 2. They condemn the Gentile while they commit the same sins. Now, I know that in a million years, I would never have the ability to get you to admit this, for to admit this would be far too embarrassing for you. But be truthful. Have you never looked at what someone else was doing and been disgusted with it. Like, that is just wrong. That's just bad. And maybe even been verbally critical of what they are doing. But yet, you got this little thing going on over in the side of your own life, which people don't know about, which you think that you have covered up. You feel the liberty to condemn over here, but you're doing it at the same time. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, interestingly, Jews and Gentiles are different. Gentiles look at other people's sin and they give hearty approval to it. Jews look at other people's sin and they scowl and point the finger, but they're still doing the same thing. And what Paul is condemning here in this is the hypocrisy. He says, do you think that you're going to get away with it? You're not. 
And the reason why you're not going to be able to get away with it is because you are admitting in judging others that you yourself are guilty when you are doing the same things that they are doing. What is the Jew saying? The Jew is saying this. Listen, I know that there are rules and these rules apply, but these rules do not apply to me for I am Mr. Privileged Character. I have an exemption. And the Jews thought that because they were God's chosen people and that because they had the covenant and because they had circumcision and because they had the heritage and they had the patriarchs and they had all of these blessings that came from God, God said of Israel, of all the nations of the earth, you alone have I known. They thought that because they were God's chosen people that they could do whatever they wanted. Well, David reasoned, because I am the king, the rules concerning adultery and murder do not apply to me. The Jews of Romans 2 thought that because they were Jews, that rules didn't apply to them. And sadly, here's where the rubber hits the road for us, because not too many of you are Jewish, and the ones that I know of you that are Jewish, you never flaunt your heritage as making you superior uh, to those of us that are Gentiles. So we don't really have an apples-to-apples situation going on at North Shore Baptist Church. But here's what we do have in principle, and that is that there are people who will say something like this, not in so many words. I'm being very crass here, but, but here's what it amounts to. I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart. I have been baptized. I am a member of the church. I have studied doctrine. I have served. I, I, I have all of this Jesus Bible church stuff that I've been swimming in for decades. I know that there are rules, but those rules just don't apply to me because I am special. I am Mr. Privileged Character. That's what Paul says is going on right here. And so the sins of the Gentiles in the 21-item vice list at the end of Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 21, 29 through 31, are not unique to Gentiles. Paul is saying, you Jews, if you were to be honest, you do these things as well. Which, which, which begs the question, which Paul gives out in verse 3, do you think that you will escape the judgment because you are Jewish? It seems like a rhetorical question. Probably it is a rhetorical question, but if you just ask it straightforward, the truth of the matter is that the Jews did view themselves as privileged, which allowed them a license and a liberty to sin, and they thought that they were going to escape the judgment simply because they were Jewish. You see, there was a double standard going on here. They were above the law, and in their minds, there should have been a double standard. After all, I'm a Jew, and my name is Mr. Privileged Character. Paul puts it another way in verse 4, but, he, but he's making the same point. And verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant, there's the key word in the text, meant, it is intended to lead you to repentance. In other words, are you being presumptuous? Are you thinking something about God or presuming that he is a certain way when in reality he is not? Now, let's be clear. Paul says, 
God is rich or overflowing with kindness and forbearance, that is, that is tolerance. Uh, he has not handed out the verdict. He has not sentenced you to damnation. He is rich in patience. In other words, he is putting up with you. He has not given you what you deserve, which is hell and damnation. But here's what you're doing. You're taking that kindness and you are putting him to the test. You are presuming upon his goodness and assuming that he will forever exercise patience. And verse 4 says, you've got it all wrong. You see, the current absence of God's wrath is not an indicator that he will always be kind and always be tolerant and always be patient. It's presumption to think that. What it means is that now, today, he is being patient with you, but he has an altogether different intention with that than what you think he does. He is not going to be patient with us forever. He, he is unimaginably patient, but he is not infinitely tolerant of sinners. And to assume that he will be is dangerous. So Paul says, you've got it all wrong. You are misinterpreting his current kindness. I don't know if I said that well enough, so let me repeat myself. You have a time of kindness. Where, 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 here's proof that this is a time of kindness. You are not in hell. So the kindness of God is, is like going on right now. The Jews of Rome in that church were thinking of it this way. This time which we have where God has not yet zapped us, what it is, it's a license. And we've got liberty. And we can do what we want. I mean, look at all the freedom that we've got. Look at all the privileges we've got. And, 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 and now we can just do whatever we want. And Paul says, I think you're viewing it the wrong way. It is true that you have time. It is true that kindness is being shown. But it's being shown for this reason. It is being shown in order to give you an opportunity to repent. And if you continue to treat it as a time where you can have license to sin, you are presuming on God. You are, you are trying to make a fool out of him. And I hope that you see in all of this that, that, that remember we talked about all that stuff that transfers from chapter one over into chapter two. I hope that you see that the Jews are, are just like the Gentiles in that their minds are messed up. Their thinking is distorted. There's a, an Alice in Wonderland thing going on here. God gives them a special status as his chosen people with the design or with the intention that they will use that special status in order to love him more and in order to serve him better and to be a light to the Gentiles. That's why God has given his mercy to them. But instead, they take that kindness that God is giving them, they take that privileged status, and they use it as, as, as I said earlier, a get-out-of-free get out of jail free card against the righteous judgment of God. And that was something that it was never designed to be. And so God is patient with them. Its design is to get them to repent and turn from their sin. But instead, they, like the Gentiles, have foolish hearts which are darkened. They profess to be wise, but in reality they are fools. So, Use the kindness of God as an indicator that he's never going to do anything to you. 
and you will be in trouble. I mean, why in the world should I repent if there's a bottomless supply of mercy and patience? I've been told my whole life that God is all-loving. He is loving, but he is not all-loving. He's also a God of justice, and he will exercise that justice. Which brings us to the final verse, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This explains the previous verse, and it explains the entire passage because it really explains what's going on in their hearts and what is being produced in their hearts. What he does here is he uses a barn or a storehouse metaphor. And he says, what you're doing by continuing to sin is, is that you are stockpiling wrath. And notice that God is not the one who, who's, who's running up the bill here. He's not the one that's compounding the interest. You are the one that's doing that. You are the one who continually makes a deposit into the storehouse of guilt. And you think that you're getting away with it because you've gotten away with it up to this point. But in reality, the current patience of God is simply allowing you to accumulate more sin and more sin and more sin. And the more sin that you accumulate, the guiltier you will be and the greater the price will be in hell, which means that on judgment day, there's just going to be more to pay for. I mean, do you ever go out to eat with somebody that's, that's like rich? I mean, just like crazy rich. And like, they don't even look at the menu. They just talk to the server and they say, bring us this and bring us that. And, and, and do you want, do you want, uh, do you want appetizers? Do I want appetizers? I mean, in all my years of ever going to a restaurant, I will look at whatever is cheapest on the menu if I'm the one paying. No, I don't want appetizers. And yes, I'll drink water and I don't want any dessert. No, just I'm, I'm here because I have to be. How can I do it in the cheapest way possible? Let's just say you go out with this person that's just loaded and you just they just start ordering and ordering and ordering. And you say to yourself, who is going to pay for this? Not me. Yeah, appetizers and dessert and coffee. Bring it all. Well, what's happening here with the sinner is the sinner is just sort of sitting there at the table saying, yeah, bring it on. Sure. Yeah. Bring me two of those. Bring it. The more they order, the more they have to pay for. And, and the time that they are getting, the kindness that they are getting, the, the, the lack of restraint from God, they view it as, wow, this is a good thing. It gives me a lot of liberty. When in reality, all it's doing, it, 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 it's just compounding the debt. In the day of wrath, something's going to happen, and that is the righteous judgment of God is going to be revealed or unleashed. Jonathan Edwards said this, and it is, it's horrifying. It, it's frightening. Edwards said that a sinner in hell would give the world and everything in it in order to reduce their number of sins by one. So like if you were in hell and you had an opportunity to get rid of just one of your sins, Edward says you'd give the world and everything in it. And yet we just stockpile. We just fill the barn with sin 
not knowing that there's a day coming when the wrath of God will be revealed. All right, four observations as we close. Number one, do an honest self-evaluation or maybe better would say have the Holy Spirit or ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Earlier today, we sang the hymn, Cleanse Me, and in it, uh, it, is, it is inspired by the words of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, Lord, I... I just have so much trouble seeing my own sin and my own guilt. I can see it clearly in other people, but Lord, I have blind spots. God, would you please help me to see me? You deal with you before you try to change your friend's guilt and sin. Matthew 7, 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And again, notice that Jesus does not condemn you assisting others with their sins and their faults, but he's saying, first, you've got to deal with yourself. Have you ever had the courage to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I think there are all kinds of sins going on in my heart right now, but I don't know what they are. I'm asking you, would you reveal me to me? I think I'm in walking I'm walking in integrity but 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 I'm probably not. And so Lord, would you please search me and try me. You deal with yourself first by repenting of your sin and confessing your sin and asking the blood of Jesus Christ to cover your sin and when you do believe me that when you deal with others you will be much more gentle and you will be much more sympathetic. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, here's the key, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Keep watch on yourself. Search me, O God. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Observation number two, do not classify yourself as a privileged character. As I said, the Jew-Gentile thing is not apples to apples, but it certainly does apply to those who have been around Christian things for a long time. I mean, do you know who I am? I mean, do you know how many generations my family have been in the faith? I've been a member of this church for 20 years. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. I'm, I'm, I'm a missionary. I have a title. Now, I've been around the, the people of God all my life. I have studied. I am a Calvinist. I, I, for crying out loud, I work in the nursery. I, I, I cannot imagine meeting up with the wrath of God in the final judgment. I understand that God does have standards and that he is going to send some people to hell, but, but that just can't be me. God knows that I am Mr. Privileged Character. So these warnings do not apply to me. Friend, the only way that you're going to make it through the judgment is not because you have a title or because you've done a lot of Bible reading or because you have been a missionary. 
The only way you're going to make it through the judgment is because of Jesus Christ and his blood and his righteousness being imputed to you. You don't want to go into the judgment with yourself alone. Your only hope is Jesus' blood and righteousness. John Newton said that when he gets to heaven, there are going to be three things which are astounding to him. He said, first of all, I'm going to be really shocked when I see folks there that I thought never make it. Like, what are they doing here? Secondly, he said, I'm going to be really shocked that there's going to be people that I thought were going to be there, but they're going to be absent. And third, Newton said, the most amazing thing that I'm going to see when I get to, get, get to heaven is myself. That is the right attitude to have. I don't deserve to be here. I am not a privileged character. It is 100% based upon the mercy of Christ. I ask you, what are you basing your eternity on? Is it your own goodness or is it the righteousness of Christ? Observation number three, and this one is to the unsaved. Do not presume upon the patience of God. Let's just say you came to church today and you know that there is such a thing as salvation and you know that you are not saved and at this time you have no interest in being saved. You want to live for yourself. You want to live for the world. You are not ready to pursue Christ. What you're doing is you're presuming upon the patience of God. You are putting him to the test. You do have today, but you do not have tomorrow promised. So do you think that because he has not yet judged you or condemned you that he never will? I want to tell you that indeed he will and that hell indeed is real. And so stop testing his patience and repent today. See, the intended purpose of God in giving you today, giving you more time is so that you will see that it is his kindness and you will use that to repent. And that kindness, which brings you to repentance, will cause you to turn from your sin and to cry out to Jesus for salvation. Which brings me to the fourth observation, the final observation, and the most important observation, and that is that Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner. David tells Nathan in his anger, that sheep thief deserves to die. Nathan says, well, you, King David, are that sheep thief. You are the man. And then David replies and says, I have sinned. And then we read something in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that in my estimation is altogether bizarre. I've been a pastor for nearly 40 years. I, I have been to seminary. I study the Bible for a living. I cannot explain to you 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. It is the most baffling verse that we're going to deal with today, and that is this. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, Nathan says to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Well, that's not the way the world works. I mean, I mean, you, you do something bad, you get, you get punished for it. You do something this bad, you commit adultery and you murder a guy, according to the law of Moses, he should have been stoned. According to God's holy law, I should be in hell right now. But I'm not. And there is only one reason why I am not. 
And that is because of God's mercy and God's grace and God's compassion and that Jesus is a better sinner, better Savior than I am a sinner. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. Remember how Paul uses the diatribe and works through a dialogue with this imaginary friend and in verse two he says, we know without a doubt that there is a just judge and there is a judgment day coming. And, and And then he says in verse five, and this judgment day is going to come upon you as a day of wrath. Now, if that's the case, then everything is square and everything is just. How then is there any hope How then can Nathan say to David, your sin has been forgiven? Here's how it works. If I'm guilty before God, I take my sin into the judgment, then on the day of wrath, I will experience the wrath of God. However, if I go into the judgment and I no longer have my sin, then the wrath of God does not abide upon me. So how then do I get rid of that sin? It is through the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance. In other words, what happened is my sin and my guilt were placed upon Jesus on the cross, and when my sin and my guilt were placed upon Jesus on the cross, God's wrath fell upon Jesus. The day of wrath, the judgment day for me, was 2,000 years ago because my sins were paid for on the cross by the great Savior, Jesus Christ. My day of wrath is not the final judgment, but my day of wrath was on Mount Calvary when Jesus died for me. He is my living Savior. He put my sin away by paying for it on the cross, and now I will not die eternally. So when we talk about looking at others and being compassionate toward them, It's not so much, oh, I better not say anything to you because I know that I myself am guilty. That's not the real key. The real key is that we can be compassionate and understanding with others when we realize that we have been shown mercy from Jesus and that we should be in hell, but we have received undeserved mercy through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is a better Savior than we are sinners. And this means that he loves you. And I hope that you were able to remember throughout the entirety of the sermon that he loves you. And I hope that you never forget that and that you always remember that. All right. 37 down, 396 to go, which means what? means we're getting there. means we're getting there. All right. Father in heaven, before this day ends, we will look at others and find fault with things that we ourselves are doing. Lord, I pray that you would convict and heal us of our hypocrisy. Lord, I pray that we would live consistently. But above all of that, Lord, I pray that we would look to you for mercy in the person of your son, Jesus, who bore the wrath that we deserve. Lord, that we would not presume upon your patience. I pray, dear Lord, that we would not take your your tolerance for for, for granted, but I pray, Lord, that we would use today seeing your goodness as a day to repent. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.